Hello, and welcome to Weber Gallagher's Workers' Compensation Academy, a podcast where our attorneys discuss how to manage risk to improve your bottom line. Now to our attorneys to tell you about today's featured episode. Hello, my name is Paul Fires. Welcome to episode one of our podcast for workers' compensation, managing your risk to improve your bottom line. This is part of a series of episodes in which our firm, Weber Gallagher, is going to be presenting information on workers' compensation in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Pennsylvania has had a workers' compensation system for over 100 years, and it's been very effective in protecting and helping both workers and employers. I'm now going to introduce my partner who's going to be presenting with me today, Jeff Newby. Morning, Paul. Morning, everybody. I'll be giving uh, the New Jersey spin. And uh, yeah, we're also over 100 years, 1911, I believe. And uh, we'll give you the more updated version as we're talking today about New Jersey Workers' Comp. And Jeff and I have a combined experience we just figured out of over 70 years in workers' compensation in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So we hope you find today's episode helpful and you tune into future episodes where we'll be diving deeper into individual law and cases for both Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Let's begin with, does Pennsylvania, New Jersey require workers' compensation insurance? Jeff, how is it in New Jersey? Absolutely. If you have employees, you have to have insurance. If you don't have insurance uh, and your, your employees are injured, you're facing both criminal and civil, uh, uh, civil sanctions. I've had a few of these cases. Sometimes it's just due to a um, you know, mistake uh, and clerical error, things of that nature. And in those instances, the New Jersey uh, Division of uh, Penalties, et cetera, they'll, they'll be pretty reasonable in dealing with the employer to get it straightened out. Um, but they're going to have to pay out of pocket for the workers' comp benefits for their injured worker. Uh, sole proprietors can opt out, so you don't have to have coverage if, if it's your business. Uh, and we have actually had some issues about whether or not the person intentionally opted in or opted out. But coverage is absolutely required. We can't have people out there working that are not covered for workers' comp benefits in the event they're injured while they're working. How about uh, Pennsylvania? I assume it's very similar. It's very similar, Jeff. Workers' compensation coverage is mandatory for most employers in Pennsylvania under the law. Those employers who do not have workers' compensation coverage could be subject to lawsuits both by their employees and criminal prosecution by the Commonwealth, and that's something relatively recent that you face criminal penalties. Now, some employers are exempted from workers' compensation coverage, and let me give you a few examples. That would include people covered under other workers' compensation acts, such as, for example, railroad workers, longshoremen, and federal employees. Domestic servants, coverage for them is completely optional. Agricultural workers who work fewer than 30 days or who earn less than $1,200 in a calendar year from one employer, they can be exempt as well. And of course, in Pennsylvania, being a very traditional state, employees who have requested and been granted an exemption due to religious beliefs, they are exempted. And finally, people can be exempted based on their executive status in certain corporations. Now, if you do have workers' compensation coverage in Pennsylvania, it is for the entire period of your employment. Now, let's get to the all-important question of compensation. Jeff, in New Jersey, can you explain how the rates work, please? Sure. Uh, if somebody's out of work for more than seven days, they're entitled to a check to, you know, to attempt to replace their wages so that they can pay the bills that they were paying while they were working. So the, the concept is it's tax-free and it's 70% of the average weekly wage. And there are minimums and maximums every year. 
the maximum, for instance, in 2019 in New Jersey is $921. And you can tell us about PA, Paul. I know it's always a bit higher. But what's frustrating about New Jersey is that there's minimums. So the minimum compensation rate, for instance, in New Jersey is $246 a week. Some folks might think, well, what's the big deal about having a minimum that's only $246 a week? Well, the, the big deal is some folks decide that they only want to work part-time. That's their, their intention. They only want to work 10, 20 hours a week. So if you're working 20 hours a week, and let's say you're making 15 an hour, so you're, you're making 300 bucks a week, your comp rate isn't going to be 210. It's going to be 246. If you're making 100 bucks a week, your comp rate's not going to be 70 bucks. It's going to be 246 a week. It's, it's frustrating, and um, I can say that I tried to change this. I, as you may know, I met, met with a senator many years ago. I presented a bill. It actually got up to the legislature. It was punted. So I tried to fix it and go more along the lines of Pennsylvania in terms of the minimum that you now have. Um, so tell us, Paul, can, you know, compare the PA workers' compensation rates to the, to the Jersey rates. Well, first of all, I know you tried really hard to fix it, and that was uh, not with giving up your day job of handling cases. Right. That was an amazing effort. Uh, Pennsylvania is a little bit richer. Uh, so for 2019, the maximum weekly wage loss benefit is $1,049. Uh, that's that's quite a bit of money uh, for many people, but actually not a lot of money for people who make, say, $2,000 a week or more. Let's keep in mind also that in Pennsylvania, workers' compensation indemnity or wage loss benefits are tax-free both for Pennsylvania taxes and federal taxes. Now, suppose you earn a little bit less, so you're not qualifying for the max. If your earnings are between $786 and $1,573, you get 66 and two-thirds percent of those wages. If your earnings are between $582 and $786, you get the flat sum of $524.50. And if the worker makes less than $582.77, you get 90% of those wages. So Jeff, even though we don't have a minimum in Pennsylvania, what's interesting is you'll not only get a flat 90%, but remembering that that's tax-free, as in the case in New Jersey, you can make more on workers' compensation benefits by being a recipient of those benefits than by actually working when you factor in the tax benefits. And that's, that's one of the things that does frustrate a lot of employers, I think, in both of our states. Yeah, but the, you know the ninety percent. Uh, you know our New Jersey employers would sign up for that. I really bet they would. would. It, it's something, you know. And I tried to get, um, you know, the minimum to be whatever the average weekly wage was. So if somebody's one hundred twenty-five dollars a week, no more than one twenty-five, which would still be somewhat of a windfall because there's no right. taxes. Right. But it'd be better than. 246 when you're making 125. Sure. The incentive to return to work is right. really not there. And, and let's remember, it's not like $125 a week is a living wage, and we are sensitive to that. But I think from the employer community, it needs to be pointed out that why should someone make more in a compensatory benefit than they were making when they were working? And there are lots of social questions about that. But speaking of social questions, let's talk a little bit about what workers' compensation is in, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. In Pennsylvania, it's a trade-off, and I'll get into that in a minute, but how about in New Jersey? Absolutely, it's, it's a, it's a trade-off. And you know, what we mean by that is both states are no-fault states. So stupidity or mistakes by either the injured worker or the injured worker's supervisor or a co-employee is not a defense to the entitlement to workers' compensation benefits. You know, the concept is it's not pain and suffering. They're not in front of a jury trying to get X, you know, half a million dollars for their uh, pain and suffering. 
The concept is the wage loss that we talked about, medical treatment to get them hopefully fully recovered, if not fully recovered, as best as they can be. So because it's not, uh, they're not looking for the pain and suffering, the big dollars, the whole concept of being able to sue your employer looking for those big dollars is off the table. In exchange for that is the entitlement to medical and wage loss without uh, regard to fault. So the injured worker is not paying attention to a, a sign or going in the wrong direction or walking on a slippery floor, even though there's a sign up, they didn't notice it. That's not a defense to the case. And the same thing with respect to a co-employee, a supervisor injuring, you know, that employee by accident. You know, they hit them with a board. I always picture the three stooges, you know, swinging around with, you know, two by fours on their shoulder. You know, you hit your co-employee in the head with the, with the two by four by accident. You can't sue your co-employee for pain and suffering. You get your wage loss, but the trade-off is uh, there's no right to sue, but you, the fault is not an issue. You get benefits regardless of whose fault it was. And it's pretty darn similar in Pennsylvania. It's also a trade-off. The injured worker can seek benefits without proving negligence or fault. The best example being you can untie your shoes and walk down the hallway and trip over those shoelaces and you will get workers' compensation benefits. Uh, but you're giving up rights to compensation for pain and suffering. So the trade-off is you get benefits relatively easily and, and without the expense or hassle of having to prove fault, uh, but the benefits you get are limited to wage loss and medical benefits only. Now, in certain cases, we have extra awards for an actual loss of a body part, and if not the loss of the body part itself, the loss of the function of the body part, even though the part is still present. That would include a toe, a finger, a hand, a leg, an arm, vision, hearing, or a permanent disfigurement. So in that sense, uh, those are the only other extra benefits that you can get, and that involves the concept of permanency. But unlike New Jersey, Jeff, Pennsylvania is not a permanency state. We're what's called a wage loss state, and benefits are paid only basis solely of whether or not you can earn what you earned at the time you were injured. Is New Jersey a permanency state? No, uh, New Jersey is a whole man state. You know, it's a loss of function state. So uh, it's, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the border that we share is so, so large, you know, between Pennsylvania and New Jersey, but we couldn't be much more different when it comes to, you know, what is the litigation uh, focus in each state? The litigation focus, as you know, in Pennsylvania is wage loss. Are they able to go back and make their pre-injury wages? And if not, how much can they make if they have some limitations, and et cetera? The wage loss issue in New Jersey is such a minor factor of what is litigated because wage loss is so much more controllable and controlled in New Jersey because wage loss is, it goes um, hand and foot with the medical treatment. So when the medical treatment ends, the wage loss ends. So your temporary disability benefits are going to keep going if the person's not back to work. In New Jersey, it doesn't matter if they're back to work or not. If they've reached a plateau of recovery, the TTD, wage loss, indemnity, whatever you want to call it, that ceases at that point. Then the issue in New Jersey, which is the focus of 90% of the litigation, is the extent to which they are permanently, totally, or permanently partially disabled. That's where the attorneys get their fee. In New Jersey, you know, the litigation is, you know, what is this injury worth? What's the percentage loss of use? So that's where the attorney gets the fee. So what do you think drives the litigation and drives the case law? It's generally permanency. You know, what is the loss of function? Whereas in Pennsylvania, wage loss is everything. So the, the attorney's fees are based upon wage loss, not specific loss of use, because I would imagine less than 10% of your cases are probably loss of use, whereas all of our litigation is, is loss of function and, and permanency. 
That's correct. Very few cases involve amputations, and when they do, they're really not contested because it's so obvious. When we do get into specific loss, which again is infrequently, it has to do with the loss of function as opposed to the actual loss of the body part. And that's where things can become a little bit more subjective and a little bit more subject to the facts and the medicine. Um, let's move on to how much time the injured worker may have to bring their claim or to notify their employer of what's going on. How does it work in New Jersey? In New Jersey, uh, the uh, outermost limit to give notice of a traumatic injury is 90 days. And I say traumatic injury because in an occupational claim, so an insidious uh, pulmonary issue, an insidious uh, carpal tunnel, you know, there's no specific date of loss, nothing particular happened. Uh, there is no notice requirement. They have a two-year statute to file a claim when they connect the dots. So when they're aware of a condition that's related to their job duties, they've got two years to file a claim. That's the only time frame for occupational. In terms of the filing of the claim petition itself and a trauma, it's two years, unlike PA, which is three, but the two years is with a little bit of a spin. The two years to file the claim petition in New Jersey is two years from the date of either the date of loss if they receive no benefits. So they don't get any wage loss and they don't get any medical bills for whatever reason. They have two years from the date of loss. If they get if it's deemed compensable and they get wage loss for six months and medical treatment for six months, the two-year statute runs from the end of that six months. So it could be two and a half years from the date of loss. Because the claim petition in New Jersey, as I mentioned before, is really seeking permanency. And since it's seeking permanency, it's, it's tied to when that, uh, the temp and the medical benefits end. So they don't have to file a claim until within two years of those benefits ending. So it's a little bit of a different spin. So they file very quickly these days. They're filing immediately after their dates of injury. It's rarely going to be a statute of limitations issue and a trauma where somebody breaks an ankle, hurts their back lifting a box. Um, but it is two years from the date of loss or from last benefit. So in Pennsylvania, it's, it's somewhat similar, but also a little bit different. Notice is required in, within 120 days of an injury. And, and, and what is notice? Let's first start with that. Telling your colleague who works with you is not adequate notice. Notice really has to be given to someone in a supervisory position. And notice has to be something more than a mere medical condition or just an incident at work. What do I mean by that? You have to say more than my back hurts or I, I lifted this box. You actually have to say that you're giving notice of a reasonably precise description of injury and that it occurred in the course and scope of employment and is related to that employment. And again, that notice has to be given to a person who is in a supervisory position, not just the colleague that you're informing of this. Now, sometimes the notice start date will extend in the case of a repetitive trauma, such as the daily use of hands in a carpal tunnel situation. In that case, the last day you've used your hands is the day that starts the notice, not the first day your hands hurt. Now, in a similar vein, our statute of limitations is a little bit longer. You must file a claim petition within three years of the date of injury. Now, there's a really narrow exception to this, and that would be in a situation in which the employee did not know that he or she was injured. You might ask yourself, how can you not know you're hurt? And I'll give you an example of that. That would involve a certain type of occupational disease claim where the employee, say, has a lung condition that started many years prior, 
but where the employee was largely symptom-free during that time frame and had no way of knowing that he or she was injured. And one of the most relatable set of cases that apply to that would be the asbestosis cases, where it had a latency period of sometimes 10, 20, 30 years, and you couldn't even begin to be diagnosed until your symptoms manifested themselves. So that's an example of a discovery rule that basically means your notice period and your statute of limitations period doesn't begin until you've discovered that you actually have the, uh, the incident or injury. Can I double back just a little bit? You know, now that you've pointed out some of those, of those PA um, time limitation issues, um, it reminds me how the states differ on those issues. So, for instance, notice, you know, I always love the fact that Pennsylvania had a very specific statutes on notice. Um, like you said, time, place, where, when, how. New Jersey isn't that specific. Uh, the case law is um, clear that if the employer if a, it's a reasonably diligent employer would have reason to suspect an injury, that's enough. So if our injured worker in New Jersey walks off the plant site at the end of the day and says to the boss, my back's killing me, that's enough for notice. That's not a new, in Pennsylvania, that would be insufficient. In New Jersey, it would be enough for the uh, notice for the employer to say, why is your back hurt? Oh, well, I just looked at all those boxes. Oh, okay. You're actually supposed to follow up. You can't do the, the monkey, hear no evil, see no evil. You actually have to ask the employee, Oh, what it, what is the problem? If they, because they'll testify, well, my boss had to know why my hand hurt. He just saw me do X, Y, and Z, where I walked in the morning and, and I wasn't limping, and I'm limping at the end of the day, and he's like, oh, what's the matter? I'm like, my knee's killing me. You're actually supposed to uh, proactively find out what's going on in New Jersey. But the statute of limitations is a little bit different in that you talked about ongoing exposure, extending the statute in Pennsylvania. The case law in New Jersey for the last four or five years has made it really clear that if you know that you've got carpal tunnel it's related to your job, it doesn't matter if you continue to do that job. Your statute doesn't continue to get extended. When you connect the dots, you've got to provide, if, file your claim within three years. So we've got some cases where the person had an EMG, they were told they had carpal tunnel, and um, as a result of knowing that they had carpal tunnel, they should have filed within three years, but they waited three and a half or four years, and they said, but I continue to do that job. So you know, I, my statute didn't run, right? Because my hands kept getting worse and worse. That's not the case. It's, it's a little tougher rule on statute, but a little easier on the notice. That's, that's really a great point. And I can add a, a corollary in Pennsylvania. If the injury is obvious to the employer, then notice isn't specifically required. If the employer supervision witnesses the injury or observes an automobile accident or sees a machine fail in a plant, if there's an obviousness to it, then notice is, is really skipped over. Let's move on to um, automation. You know, there's been a great influx of technology to all systems and all lines of work around, around the world. Uh, has automation found its way into the New Jersey workers' compensation system? Yes, and I'm proud to say more quickly than Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> right, you are. <laughs> yes. Tell us about it. Well, New, uh, New Jersey, uh, is, we call it Quartz Online, it's an, the acronym Quartz, all capital letters, but it's, it's the computerized system on the New Jersey Workers' Compensation uh, Division. It's been computerized online for 15 years, where forms have been filed online. It's been required for quite a while. Um, all the, uh, well, the, we only have two forms. But anything that you need to find on the New Jersey website is, is present. Uh, the hearing notices, you could find those on the, online for, again, the last 10 or 15 years. Um, child support liens, they're attached to our system, so you don't have to go find them. Child support liens, uh, the Division of um, Adoption is um, integrated with Workers' Comp, 
So they attach the lien to our case. So if I look my case up on the system, I can see that there's an outstanding child support lien. Uh, the same thing with uh, New Jersey State Division of Disability. If they pay wage loss while somebody's out on workers out for workers' comp injury, but we can test it, the lien will be attached to our case. We can see how much the state's paid, and the state's going to say at the end of the case, if you've decided it's compensable, here's how much you owe us. But we know already because it's online. So the online um, aspect of New Jersey, uh, the Division of Workers' Compensation, uh, is alive and well. It's a great way to track cases. You have to become a member of courts online. So all the attorneys are, not all of our clients are, but they can be, and they can track their cases regularly and see if there's additional claims pending, who all the parties are, the allegations of other claims. You can find prior claims, prior decisions. They're all available uh, online for the, uh, in the division website. Um, and we can all ca calculate awards based upon the OSCAR, O-S-C-A-R, the OSCAR website calculates all of our awards. If you put in the right information, it'll tell you how much the case is worth. Well, you did really get a big head start on us, but I have to say, in deference to my Pennsylvania <laughs> colleagues, we've come back with a vengeance. Yes, you have. We now have a system called the Workers' Compensation Automation and Integration System, and the acronym is WCAIS, W-C-A-I-S. This is a web-based system that integrates the program areas of the Bureau of Workers' Compensation, which is the, the bureau that runs the whole system, the Workers' Compensation Judge's Office, called the Workers' Compensation Office of Adjudication, and the Workers' Compensation Appeal Board. That's the entity that hears appeals from the judges. Also, the WCAB, the Appeal Board, and the Bureau of Workers' Compensation Helplines were implemented all the way back in September of 2012. Through that, users gained the ability to file appeals, petitions, and documents online with the WCAB, as well as search and view the filings, related correspondence, and appeal summaries. Users also gain the ability to contact the helpline either by phone or through WICUS to obtain basic information on, say, the status of appeals. Then, on September 9th of 2013, the Bureau implemented WICUS for the rest of the workers' compensation program. So now, users, and by users I don't just mean lawyers, but I also mean employees, employers, third-party administrators, and insurance carriers, they can now all file petitions, applications, forms, and other documents online. They can also search for and view all filings and documents, as well as related correspondence. The workers' compensation community has full online access to all workers' com compensation matters, and, and except for people who really do not have computer access, the U.S. mail has really been taken out of our system. Okay. All right. You caught up to us. <laughs> I, I admit it. You guys, you guys are doing well. We don't have the deposition practice that you have. Um, all of our litigation, almost all of our litigation is done in court. Um, you know, even doctors, they testify live. Uh, all the witnesses testify live. Once in a while, you can get permission to do it by deposition, but since PA has such a strong deposition practice, it's kind of very helpful for you guys to be able to submit them on, you know, online through WICUS. We really do, and that saves everybody money, both the employers and the injured workers, because to have a witness come in live, especially if they're a professional or an expert, involves a fee. It's one thing to take their deposition at one price point. It's another thing to have them give up the time and travel to come to court to testify. It's a whole different price point. So yes, our, our practice is largely deposition focused, but it's not without its opportunities to present live testimony. When you have that special witness in that special case, there's really no substitute for bringing him or her in live in front of the judge to testify. I have found that that's very effective, but again, 
only for the right case. Now, one thing I can say about Pennsylvania is that it's a very, very form-heavy heavy state. There's a form for just about everything. Did I hear you correctly that New Jersey is a little bit less form-intensive? Uh, a little bit like the, the size of the Grand Canyon, <laughs> a little bit less, yes. It, it's a huge difference. Um, it's one of the favorable aspects of New Jersey workers' comp. If you talk to folks that, you know, adjusters, uh, TPAs, and attorneys that have handled, I've handled both states, as you know, the difference uh, couldn't be more drastic. And it's one of the favored aspects of the New Jersey workers' comp system is there are two forms and only one is ever used. So how's that for simple? So the employer's first report of injury is required in every case. And I, I, I really like having that form and I get the, a new file. It does give me some good information. You know, when, when were they hired? You know, witnesses to the incident? Where was the first place they went to seek treatment? The second form, and I've discussed this before at, um, at seminars and presentations, and I'll put it up on a, on a screen and in a PowerPoint. I've had colleagues or people across the aisle, petitioners attorneys attend to get their CLE credits. And they look up and they look at the form and said, I've never seen that form in my life. <laughs> <laughs> the second form is, is kind of a summary of the case, all the benefits that were paid. But since 90% of, of the case injuries in New Jersey, even finger tweaks, go into litigation, when the case settles, the settlement form kind of operates as that second form. It summarizes the case and the benefits that were paid. So that's why it's not necessary. So the, the flip side of the coin of it's not a form intensive state, there are not a lot of um, uh, time deadlines that you have to follow. I won't get into in too much detail. Uh, we did a webinar, webinar on this once and it, it's on the WG University if you ever want to see it, but uh, the slowness of New Jersey is what drives people crazy. The lack of forms is great. The fact that you can control treatment is great, but it, it's a, the state moves slowly because that issue of permanency it's ripe when it's ripe, and it's not ripe before when it's ripe, and it's very, very annoying. But forms, it's a great state for, for the lack of forms. So we're the opposite, and we're, I guess, the equivalent of the Grand Canyon. I, I once tried to count how many forms we have in Pennsylvania, and I recall that in third grade, I wasn't told to count that high. Uh, we, have a, we have a whole lot of forms in Pennsylvania that cover a good deal of how the case flows, and you can file the form at the inception of the case and many forms throughout the case, right up until the time that the case is either decided or settled. Uh, but you touched on something called medical control, and I want, to, I want to segue into that because we have one really, really important form that gives our state and our state's employers 90 full days of control of medical treatment, which sounds like a lot in Pennsylvania, and I know New Jersey, it's way, way different. But to get 90 days of medical control in Pennsylvania, you have to have a form called a rights and duties form signed by the injured worker, both at the time of hire and at the time of injury, or if not at the time of injury because of its severity, as soon after the injury as possible. If that form is dual signed, and that's the form that basically tells them of their obligation to treat with the employer's panel physicians that have been pre-selected during the first 90 days, if that form is signed again at the time of hire and at the time of injury, the employer's doctors, hand-picked doctors, control all of the medical. And if the form is signed and the injured worker chooses not to treat with those folks, then the employer doesn't have to pay for the treatment. But again, during those first 90 days, I have a feeling this is another Grand Canyon situation that New Jersey is just a little bit different. Huge. Again, and another great aspect of you know, New Jersey workers' comp. Under Section 15 of the statute, the employer is quote-unquote obligated. I mean, we love this obligation. Obligated to provide treatment through the life of the claim. Not 90 days, no time limitation from beginning to end. 
So it's an obligation that in a compensable case where we agree that it arises out of and during the course of employment, we want to control that treatment. We, uh, we want to do a good job for the injured worker. We want them to see the best doctors that we can for that type of injury and have them recover as fully as possible. It's for everybody's benefit. We want them back to work, being productive. When, it, when they want that permanency award, we want it to be as small as possible because we gave them great care. But it's the life of the claim. And um, so it, it, it uh, varies from, you know, the OCMED panel doctors, if they need referrals to experts, you know, the knee expert, shoulder, et cetera. But it is the life of the claim up until the point of maximum medical improvement, a plateau of recovery. It's the point where the injured worker is not going to get any better. So some of the issues that are we bump heads a lot with petitioner's counsel is, the, and sometimes even convincing our clients, if it's necessary, do we have to provide palliative care? And that's always, that's always a rub. We don't do it unless it's a chronic case. If it's something where the person, if they were not receiving treatment, could decompensate, we have to provide it to make sure that they stay at that plateau. But yeah, we're, we're done at maximum medical improvement, life of the claim, huge difference. Um, another big difference between our states is we have thousands of cases pending right now on medical fee disputes because our schedule, our statute talks about usual and customary. That's it. That's the phrase, usual and customary. You can imagine there's some disputes about what is usual and customary for a certain fee. Whereas I don't think you guys have nearly as much litigation about uh, medical costs and medical expenses. And Paul, why don't I throw that back to you? Tell me about what's what are the medical uh, expenses and you know payments in New Jersey uh, PA? How does that work? Thank God for the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Ours are right. capped at one hundred and thirteen percent of Medicare fee schedule. So everybody knows what that is, and everybody knows what they're going to pay, and and you can you can budget accordingly because the surgery will cost the same whether it's in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or Scranton or Erie or Harrisburg or Williamsport, and that's a really good thing. Um, you can you can challenge the reasonable and necessity of the treatment, but you always know pretty much what the treatment's going to cost. There might be one exception, and that would have to do with emergency treatment, where an injured worker is entitled to get emergency treatment at the cost charged by the hospital without adjustment per fee schedule. But yes, all of our fees are, are, are solidly capped at no more than 113% of Medicare fee schedule, and even with that, Jeff, there is the right to negotiate separate fees directly between insurance carrier and provider if both parties are willing. How does it work in New Jersey? There can be contracts, um, and occasionally we'll have these medical provider uh, applications come in, and the attorney for the provider will say, I don't even know why we're disputing this. There's a contract. And I go back to my client, is there a contract? And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> if you give me the contract, I think we probably need to abide by that. There's equal bargaining position here between the two of you. If you've agreed to pay X dollars for epidural injections or for physical therapy, then that's what you, that's what you need to pay. But the litigation right now is it's crazy um, because everybody's got their own formula, and the medical pay vendors have a formula. And but they if they tell you what the formula is, they have to kill you. And I, you know I've, I've got a few more weddings to attend and things like that, so <laughs> they're not going to tell me what the formula is. But it's their formula, and then the attorneys for the medical providers have their own formula. We call them EOBs, Explanation of Benefits. And you talked about the same fee for the surgery throughout the state. Well, that's not the case in New Jersey. The fee for a surgery in, Hack, you know, um, in Patterson versus what it might be in Atlantic City, Trenton, or Tom's River can be totally different. It's usual and customary in that, in that geographic region. So you take the averages and try and figure it out whether or not how much they accept from Medicare, how much they accept from PIP and try and come up with some kind of an average. And of course, the vendors come up with a low average. 
and the provider comes up with the high average, and we have to negotiate these. And um, I, I think once we get a fee schedule like Pennsylvania has, these cases will go by the wayside. They probably will, but speaking of cases going by the wayside, another important difference between our two states is our ability to settle each and every case that comes down the pike in Pennsylvania. And I want to talk about that for a minute because it's a significant change that dates all the way back to 1996, but applies to any case in the system. Our settlements are called compromise and releases, and you can settle any case in whole or in part for any dollar value. And the judge's obligation is to both approve the settlement, but the judge must approve the settlement legally if the judge is convinced that the claimant understands fully the nature of the agreement and what he or she is doing, which means you can settle a case for $1 or a million dollars, but as long as the injured worker understands what they're doing, then the judge is legally obligated to approve that. And the big advantage for that in Pennsylvania is that it gives closure. It allows reserves to be removed from the liability side of the balance sheet and go back to the asset side of the balance sheet. And you don't have to worry about reopening cases. And you don't have to worry about the injured worker ever coming back with more medical bills or a request for more wage loss. The case is over, done, and finished. Rub it in. Rub it in. <laughs> How does it work in New Jersey, my friend? Oh, man. Just, just you know, put in the knife and twist the handle. Oh, my God. You know, my New Jersey clients that are listening to you describe that are just, that's when they say, Say, you know what? Form swarms. <laughs> I go across the freaking bridge, and I'm gonna I'm gonna deal with Pennsylvania, so I can close cases out. I can close them out two days after the injury, six months after the injury. Anytime we can reach a dollar figure, because you know what you said. You know I have to highlight a little bit more about Pennsylvania before I come into New Jersey. You said the judge in Pennsylvania has to uh, be convinced that the injured worker knows that the rights that they're waiving. That's it, right? Correct. That's the only criteria. Uh, yeah, and, and I'll even use the phrase, understand what they're doing, which is a slightly broader concept. But yes, it means the same thing. Yep. You know this is your last day in court. It's the only check you're ever going to get. Correct. Correct. Does the judge that approves that in Pennsylvania, see, I'm going to interview you now. Does the judge that approves that in Pennsylvania ask you, what's the case all about? Uh, that's a very good question because there's some judge that regret not having the right mm -hmm. to decide whether or not the deal is in the injured worker's best interest. And they'll ask questions nine ways to Sunday, and it can go on for a half an hour. And if the person can't be articulate about the case, they'll say, I don't think the person understands it. I might not approve it. That's a minority of judges in our state, but most judges don't do that. They feel that it's their role simply to ask basic questions about understanding the terms of the settlement itself and what they're giving up, and then it's typically approved. Right, and the finality of it. Yes. Right. Completely unlike that in New Jersey. New Jersey's corollary to the compromise and release, the CNR is Section 20, and that stands for the section of the statute that allows for a full and final settlement. So the case is over uh, forever in a day, like a CNR, like, like a civil lawsuit, red light, green light. You know, here's $15,000 instead of going to a jury. Case is over. Section 20 is as our statute. Unfortunately, Section 20 has a lot of limitations and criteria that Pennsylvania does not have. First of all, they have to be represented by counsel. They can, cannot be unrepresented. It has to be approved by a judge. So you can't do it by by letter, by stipulation, by an agreement that you just mail around and, and mail it into the, uh, the division in Trenton. has to be approved by a judge. They have to have counsel. Then there are four criteria that are in the statute, and that is it has to be uh, an issue of jurisdiction, liability, cause of relationship, or in a death case, dependency. So it's our job on the defense side in every case that we can do it to try and get a Section 20. Our clients want these cases to close with some finality. So we look for those three primary issues, jurisdiction, 
liability and causal relationship. You know, is there medical causation defense to the, to the heart attack where the back injury didn't take place at work? They're not our employee, they're an independent contractor. Uh, they tweaked their back, but two months later they injured their back again in a personal motor vehicle accident. So how are we responsible for any further benefits? But we have to have a hook. What I describe for the clients is if the case were to go to trial, at the end of the trial and evidence being submitted, if the judge could dismiss the case with prejudice, then I can get a section 20. If at the end of the trial the judge would be obligated to provide an award, the question is only how much, I cannot get a section 20. So if it's a course and scope injury, we provided wage loss, we provided medical bills, the judge finds everything compensable, and there is some degree of permanency. They will find an award, I can't section 20 that case. So if my doctor finds a related 2% of the knee or the back of the neck, I don't have that hook. The additional hurdle that we have to jump over is you describe the judge just trying to make sure that the injured worker in Pennsylvania knows what the rights they're waiving and the finality of the decision. In New Jersey, the judge will, oftentimes they ask for the medical records, they want to see the expert reports, or they want a summary from the attorneys. What was, what's the case about? What happened? Jeff, I guess your doctor found a 0% disability, or you denied the case from the outset. They see my answer in, the, in their file. They want to know, what's the, is, does this meet one of those four criteria? And then on the stand, the judge, uh, and on the record, the judge will have to say, I find this settlement fair, just, and reasonable. Your judges don't have to say that it's fair, just, and reasonable. Our judges can blow it up and say 20 grand's not enough. I want to see the parties in chambers. You know, so a Pennsylvania comp judge isn't going to blow up a CNR because it's not enough money because they're not necessarily entitled to know all the details of the case. And most of them, as you said, don't request that or require that. Right. So Section 20 has serious limitations. And because it has serious limitations, we have what you were alluding to, which is the application to review the reopeners. If they settle the case for the meniscal tear and we pay 20% of the leg, they can come back within two years and seek further wage loss, medical treatment, or an increase in that 20% award. It's the bane of the existence in New Jersey. It, it, a lot of clients don't want to even call them settlements when we resolve the case for 20% of the leg because they know the case is not really over forever. It can come back. So it's a temporary resolution of the issues. It may not come back, but it can. They've got two years to come back. So it is a huge difference. New Jersey holds on to their cases longer because of the concept that it's the employer's problem to continue to deal with this issue if it becomes an issue in the future. And still, with these differences that we've talked about, I bet I can find some areas of common ground. How about in the area of subrogation? How about when there's a third party that's really responsible for the injury going beyond the employee? Is there an ability to recover money for the employer and the carrier? Yeah, largely the statutes are, are similar. And I, as you know, when I did PA workers' comp, I did a lot of subrogation work, I really got you know, very familiar with Section 319, which is your statute, and, and um, we're, we're Section 40 in New Jersey. Yeah, if the employer is obligated to pay wage loss, medical, and permanency to an injured worker as a result of the negligence of a third party, someone other than obviously a co-employee or the supervisor. Such as in the case of an automobile accident or a defective piece of machinery or a chair that collapses, that kind of thing? Yep, uh, def yeah, defective ladder, you know, things of that nature. If the employee has the ability to sue a third party as a result of their injuries, then the employer gets to, um, gets to seek reimbursement for their temp, medical, and permanency. Similar to Pennsylvania, we have to pay, we have to kick in our share of council fees because there's an attorney that's done a good job for the injured worker, we don't get out scot-free. We've got to contribute a percentage towards that kitty, you know, towards that half a million dollar settlement. Uh, what's 
different between the two states is New Jersey, in New Jersey, the uh, carrier employer will never pay more than one-third of, of their lien back towards a fee. So the one-third fee is a max in New Jersey, whereas I know in Pennsylvania can go over, uh, over a third. If the attorney fee is less than a third, we pay less, and our costs are capped at seven fifty. It doesn't matter how much the costs were incurred in prosecuting that third-party case were capped at seven fifty. What are the differences in uh, Pennsylvania, Paul? Well, let's emphasize, first of all, subrogation is an absolute right for employers when a third party is responsible, either in whole or in part, for the original work injury. Many people have tried to test it, and they failed. It's an absolute right, and the only entity that can waive it is the employer or the employer's carrier. It cannot be forcibly waived and, and that put on them. Um, the employers reimburse for what it paid on the claim for indemnity and medical benefits. Vendor costs, attorney fees, things of that nature, they don't count. But the bulk of the case is in indemnity and medical benefits anyway, so that's really a good thing. So we're reimbursed for that dollar for dollar less a pro rata share of the plaintiff attorney's fees that were incurred to bring about that recovery. So that can be less than a third, it can be a third, it could be more than a third, depending on the dollars involved. And we have very simple programs that allow us to have those numbers really crunched in an automated fashion so we can know what that is. Now, now why is this concept in place? That's because I think in both of our states, Workers' compensation is the exclusive remedy for the injured worker, and no injured worker can double recover, meaning that you can't collect from workers' compensation and collect in tort separately and have all that money in your pocket. Again, part of the trade-off is you get to drop any claims for negligence, you get to drop any claims for fault, and in exchange, this is your exclusive remedy. So again, if some product or situation caused the injury, whether it's an automobile accident or a defective piece of machinery, um, and the employee brings an action against the person who caused that problem, say the manufacturer of the product or the other driver, we get our money back, less the attorney's fees associated with bringing that money in. And that's been one of the great things, and it's allowed a lot of money to come back into our coffers because not every injury is from lifting boxes. Some of them can be caused by other things. So that's pretty much the same in New Jersey, I take it. It is very much so. Um, uh, what I wanted to ask you is, uh, I, I know this happens in, in Pennsylvania, it certainly happens in New Jersey, um, but the issue of compromising the lien, you know, uh, it, it comes up in New Jersey. Why don't you tell me first what experience you have with the request from the plaintiff's attorney for us to compromise the lien and, and what do you recommend to the clients? Well, I get that request as, as, as often as, as, as the sun rises every day in the year. Everyone wants us to compromise our lien, and, and it's, it's really kind of funny when I get that question because my answer is always no. <laughs> <laughs> Pure and simple. It's our money, and I want it, and I want every cent of it, and too bad. Well, they say, I might not win my case, and you could lose. I'm like, well, you're paid to try your case. Go try your case. But I will say this. There's always a reason to consider compromising your lien. If the case is in the right posture, and again, this is a Pennsylvania-specific thing, that it could be settled because you can actually use the extent to which you compromise the lien as a funding mechanism for the settlement so that you're not turning over any new money. And I've done that countless times, but you have to do that in the right case when all the stars line up and everything works. And believe it or not, that's allowed us to settle cases for the proverbial $1, including either a partial or a whole waiver of the lien if the numbers work out. So I'm not saying you never consider it, but you have to consider it in the right case. But my default answer is typically no. 
And, and of course, I want to be there in court and I want to be there at the settlement table when they're trying to hash out a settlement in a third party case. And I want to protect my client's rights, which I do, because no matter how often an attorney or a judge threatens me, they know they're absolutely powerless to prevent me from collecting every cent of that lien. And when I know I'm getting that money back, I then have all the leverage that I need to either get the case settled or replenish my client's coffers. How is it over there? Uh, we get the request for compromise frequently. Uh, I think one of the most annoying or bothersome circumstances that I see is when the compromise takes place after I've settled the case um, and I, it's no longer an active piece of litigation in my, in my office and they go directly to the adjuster and they try and manipulate the adjuster into the compromise. I, I always tell them, call me. Uh, I don't care if my case is closed. Call me back and, 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 and allow me to engage in the discussions. Um, what, the reason it comes up at all for us, you have, our first answer is, is always no as well. But you can imagine the scenario where there's um, you know, a half a million dollar lien, workers comp lien, and liability is, is slim. And the offer on the table is $100,000. So the attorney will get paid, you know, maybe a third, and maybe costs will get reimbursed. And where's the rest of the money go to? Us. Injured worker walking around with a limp? Zero. And the attorney says, really? They're the one with the limp. So, you know, we try and put a little bit, a couple bucks in their pocket. I, you know, we try and be somewhat equitable. But I always tell my clients, if you're not done paying this case and there's reopener rights, they can come back in the future. The, our bleeding isn't over. And I tell the plaintiff's attorney, you may, you may walk away and go to your next civil lawsuit. My client can't walk away from this comp case. I want future credits. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening to episode one of Workers' Compensation, Managing Your Risk to Improve Your Bottom Line. Please make sure you stay tuned for future episodes that will be very state-specific for Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, where we get into a lot more information that will help you manage your risk and get those cases closed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to Weber Gallagher's Workers' Compensation Academy. We hope you join us for our next episode to learn more about managing risk to improve your bottom line. If you would like to listen to this podcast again, share it with others, or tune into other episodes in the series, please visit our website at www.wglaw.com.